Welcome to Trashy Divorces. I'm Alicia. I'm Stacy. It's week nine and we're tired. <laughs> it's been kind of a distracting week. We also do have some pretty exciting news. Hot take, hot take. Your birthday is today. It's my birthday. So now you can try to hack all of my bank accounts or something. I don't know. Why would you say that? <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to Trashy Divorces in honor of Stacy's birthday. Yep. We're going to be taking a little break this week. We've got brand new divorces, the divorces we were doing for this episode coming to you next week, but we're going to use today to post up a few previous Patreon episodes. So yeah, we have some 300 uh, stories over on, on the Patreon, and so we're going to pull a couple of those out for you this week, ones that we particularly love. There, there's a lot going on over there. We have a bunch of different series one of my favorite is Fun with Dunn, yes. where I do a deep dive into Dominic Dunn's writing on particular trashy divorces-ish subjects. This week, I'm bringing you the tale of the monster that is Klaus von Bülow yep. and his not trashy divorce from his wife, Sunny, but... Whom he may have murdered. Yeah, it's a little true crime adjacent mm-hmm. for y'all who are into mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I think this should uh, definitely... Pat the belly a little bit. And Stacy, this week... Yeah, well, because there's so much uh, First Amendmenting going on this week, and for great reasons, um, I decided to to dive into a side piece story that we did about the torrid, perhaps, affair between Alexander Hamilton and Mariah Reynolds. Say no to this. Yes, this was definitely borrowed from uh, the Hamilton musical, but... Also, there's an alternate history take on it, and like history records that this was America's first sex scandal, but it may also have been a financial fraud scandal. It's interesting. It's interesting. Super interesting. So that is what we have got for you this week. In the meantime, we do have, I don't know, a definite percentage of those 300 episodes posted Mm -hmm. under... Our Trash Candy Quarantine link at bit.ly slash Trash Candy Quarantine. You know, if you're cooling your heels and need some extra listening, that's where we're pulling stuff out from the paywall. This is kind of the flavor of what you will get over on the Patreon this week. Ooh, how to follow up on everybody's favorite survivor queen of Henry VIII, Anne of Cleves. Yep, history's original AOC. And we went back to April in Paris, and I covered the amazing... She was the original everything it girl mm-hmm. story of Josephine Baker. I love that story. She's so amazing. It was such a good story this week. And you brought us another Church of the Flaming Dumpster Fire. I did. I covered televangelist Kenneth Copeland, which was part of what was distracting this week, too, is like his all that is so much worse than it's I a hell of a knew. story. It's, he's, so let's huh. we're so close to starting the episode. But first, I'm pulling out the magic mirror. We have some shout outs to give to our new patrons this week who joined us over at Team Trash Candy. Yep. Huge thank you to Heather, Don M, Eleanor S, Amy S, Jenny J, Renee C, Christy K, Jennifer W, Lisa T, Janice W, Molly S, and Diana H. Thank y'all. Yep. Y'all are just the best. Welcome. Yep. And thank you to Margaret, who became a super supporter this week. A new Trash Candy connoisseur. Thank yeah. you, Margaret. To all of our patrons, new and existing Y'all are the very best. Mm-hmm. To everyone tuning in, we hope you enjoy these hot takes out of the vault. Yep. So, Alicia, are you ready to go, go, go? 
clean hands, trashy heart. Let's do this. Go, go, go. Cue the music. So uh, this week it's not Fune with Dune. No. It's Unfune with Dune. Unfune with Dune. Fun with Done. Welcome. Brought to you by Alicia. To another episode. Fun with Done 109. Fune with We Dune. are continuing our course of Dominic Dunn. And today we are going to be talking about Sonny and Klaus. Yeah, this one gets a little close to home for me. Not the Baudelaire children. <laughs> Although our couple today is the inspiration. For the names huh. of the kids in Lemony Snicket. There you go. Well, that's upsetting a little bit. A little bit. Uh, the Sonny and Klaus we're going to talk about today are the Von Bulos and Dominic Dunn and all the tea on them. Yeah, I remember this being extremely famous when I was so young that it, it I didn't understand what was happening. Well, I'm going to fill you in today, babes. Please do. Okay. So Dominic Dunn wrote a wrote an article for the 1985 edition of Vanity Fair, Fatal Charm, The Social Web of Klaus von Bülow. This same article is also printed within Dunn's collection of articles from Vanity Fair in the aptly enough named Fatal Charm and Mansions of Limbo. There was another follow-up part to this in September 1985 in Vanity Fair, the part two of Fatal Charm. This is a story about murder and hypoglycemia and... Let's talk about some real fucking facts. Klaus von Bülow. Tell me about him. Astrologically. Oh, God. Is a Leo. He's born on August 11th, but I'm going to say he's actually a monster instead. Okay. I can tell you the good things about the characteristic traits of Leo personalities born on August 11th. However, on a negative front, August 11th personalities may show impatient irritability, and headstrong behavior in unfavorable situations. That's the part to hold on to. Also, this motherfucking monster shares a birthday with Jerry Falwell and Hulk Hogan. Oh, well. I don't know what that means, but I hate Klaus von Bülow. Martha Sharp Crawford, his wife, was uh, born on September 1st. She's a Virgo. Can I interrupt? And It was Hulk Hogan. I mean, Peter Thiel funded the lawsuit, but Hulk Hogan took down Gawker. Oh, okay. So actually... Well, there's some positive traits, too, to the August 11th birthday. No, Gawker was, like, I mean... It was, oh, it was good. Yellow journalism, but it was oh, good. Yeah. I mean, they had they got the dirt. Sorry, let me go back and restress. Impatient irritability and headstrong behavior in unfavorable situations. Yeah. Okay. Martha Sharp Crawford, Sunny, September 1st, Virgo. Relationship is never going to work. Uh, Sunny is the only child of a utilities magnet, she was born on one of her father's railway carriages, providing her first nickname of Choo Choo. Choo Choo! Before her sunny disposition crafted oh a new nickname of oh Sunny, okay. which she was known by her whole life. Her dad died when she was about three years old, and at that time she inherited $100 million. Hmm. Not bad. In Not 2017 bad. dollars, it's about $1.8 billion. Yeah. It's a lot of money for a little girl. So she was a real billionaire. Okay. Yeah, a real billionaire. On July 20th, 1957, Sonny married her first husband, a legitimate prince, Prince von Auersberg, Alfred Edward Friedrich Venez Martin Maria Prince von uh, Auersberg. He was an abuser though, right? 
They did not have a very happy marriage. Uh, They did get divorced, but at the wedding of her daughter, Allah, he did want to marry her again. Like, it was a little bit sad. I think he was kind of a rabble-rouser, carouser. Uh, Let's see. He is from a distinguished but impoverished Austrian noble family. Martha was his, Sonny, was his tennis instructor in a Swiss resort. They have two kids, Princess, because... Right. He's a prince. Right. Princess Annie Laurie Alla von Auersberg. She is named after her grandmother, Sonny's mom. And Prince Alex, George Auersberg, uh, who uses that name without the von, because that's just a little too fancy for yeah, Alex. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sonny and the prince were divorced in 1965. Sonny's net worth at that time was about $75 million. Alfred died Sadly enough, he was in a car accident in 1983 in Austria and was in an irreversible coma for nine years, very much like Sonny Holy was. Holy shit. And died Those in 1992. Poor children. Those poor children is right. So on June 6, 1966, about a year after the divorce, Sonny marries Klaus von Bülow. He is a former aide to oil man J.P. Getty. I have a lot to say about J.P. Getty, and I'm probably not telling it in this story, but backburner that shit because I have some problems. Okay. Okay. Together, Sonny and Klaus have one daughter, Cosima, who married another count, Pavancelli, later down the road, but this all happens when she's very little. Sure. By 1979, the marriage between Sonny and Klaus was in a period of significant stress, a lot of tension. Had developed in their marriage. Both are openly speaking of a divorce. It may be because Klaus is fucking a soap opera star named Alexandra Isles, who is also a countess. She is the daughter of Count Mulkey. What? <sighs> okay. Right. So before we get to the actual murder of Sonny, we need to go back a year, like exactly a year to Christmas of 1979, where Sonny was found in a coma just a few days before Christmas, although she did recover. Doesn't remember how she got there. The doctors, because of her recovery, blame it on, they diagnose severe epidemic of hypoglycemia, and that's why she was in a coma, and be careful of your low blood sugar. All right. During the next year, Klaus is still dating Alexandria, who, and divorce is still on the table, And Alexandria is like, I'm not going to be your mistress anymore. You have six months to make this situation, to make it happen. Funnily enough, right about that six-month time period is when Sonny Von Bulow ends up dead. Because you see, if he divorces, he's penniless. Right. He's got nothing. He's Danish. Is that right? Yeah. Well, his dad was a Nazi, too. We'll talk about it in a second. Ugh. If he divorces her, no pennies. Right. If she's dead, it leaves him a very rich man. Lots of pennies. Lots and lots of pennies. Plenty of pennies. So let's go ahead and get to the night of December 20th, 1980, Newport. Now, Sunny, heiress to a natural gas fortune. Every bit of it is her money. She lives in Newport. She's got a fancy New York apartment, homes all over. But Clarendon Court in Newport is one of her favorite homes. It is also the set for the movie High Society back in the day. Okay. 
that night, she can't walk up the stairs. She is physically, like, she's having a bad night. And her son, Alex, who is 21 at the time, carries her to bed. And he's kind of confused. He gets into her room and looks for sleeping pills. Sure, sure. What's going on? Yeah, what's going on with mom? But Sunny loves Christmas. And for years and years, she will a thousand percent overboard at Christmas. He kind of chalks it up to holiday exhaustion. She just is too amped about the Christmas season. This is the last time Alex will see his mom conscious. Jesus Christ, yeah. Uh, December 21st, paramedics are called. Sonny is found lying face down on the bathroom floor. There is congealed blood on her mouth. Her nightgown is around her body. Paramedics get there and find it all very strange because her head is actually underneath the toilet. So imagine you're sitting on the toilet and you pull your gown up. If you fall in that situation, you're going to fall forward, which is why your gown would be up because you're on the like, right? But her head's under the toilet. Her gown is up and it's all, it's a weird crime scene. The paramedics cannot find the origin of the source of blood. They're looking around like, how did you cut your mouth open There's no blood on, like, your vanity or your, like, it's all weird. But they're treating her. Her injuries can't be accounted for. Her pulse is 35 beats per minute. Her body temperature is 81 degrees. Okay. So she's at death's door here. It is December. Yeah. And all the windows in the bathroom are wide fucking open. Because Klaus von Bülow is a monster. They rush her to the hospital. Klaus, in the ambulance, they get to feeling like... He's not acting quite like he should. Can I interject? Mm -hmm. Severe hypoglycemia makes you incredibly hot and sweaty. It is possible that she opened the windows herself. It could be. putting that out there. It could be. Hang tight. Talk about it. Klaus in the ambulance is acting not like a concerned spouse. Paramedics normally are like, yeah, you have a spouse that... Come on, honey, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Right, or right. freaking out. He sits there like an ice cold fucking snow cone machine without the happiness. He's saying nothing. Hmm. Okay. Sonny gets in the hospital. They test her. They're like, what the hell? It's not her first coma. She had one a yeah, year before. Run everything. Yeah. She has dangerously low levels of sugar and very high levels of insulin in her body. Okay. Which makes sense. Doctors do some tests and discover this insulin is not generated by her. Someone has given her a dose of insulin. I think at the time, insulin was animal-derived. It's GMO now, but at the time, like, they'd be able to identify that because it it wouldn't, it's not human insulin. Right. Yeah. No, she's overdosed on insulin, which is the very last thing you want to do to a hypoglycemic. Oh, without a doubt. They have like because insulin, insulin drops and your hypoglycemia do not go together. No, no, no. Insulin drops your blood sugar. Hypoglycemia is dangerously low blood sugar. These are yeah, you don't you, you don't do it. Mm-hmm. There's no reason on earth that you'd have a vial of insulin hanging around in a home with a hypoglycemic. It is not it just I, this is the part that Right. <sighs> okay. Now, it's a hell of a murder weapon, though. I mean... It's a hell of a murder weapon. Sonny is now in an irreversible coma in a New York hospital. 
Uh, within four weeks, Klaus is on vacation with Alexandra von uh, Alexander Isles, his mistress. It's weird that the kids decided he did it. Well, the kids are like, hey, Klaus sucks, and we're pretty sure his dirty deeds are all over what happened to our mom, and he sure is acting funny, so let's go ahead and take take a deeper look at this. Now, you have to remember this family has a shit ton of money, a load of money, load of privilege. So they don't want to rile up the authorities without any kind of proof. They'd rather investigate it a little bit more quietly to be able to have some concrete facts to bring to the authorities. So they talked to one of their family friends, a former district attorney in Manhattan. He was like, all right, let's do some investigating. He hires a private investigator and Alex, the son, and the private investigator, as well as a locksmith, head on over to Clarendon Court, the home in Newport. And they know Klaus has this closet that he's able to lock. And they remember seeing this black bag around, a a travel bag. They get into the locked closet and they find a lockbox, which the locksmith, good they brought him along, picks the lock. And in the lockbox, they find the infamous black bag in which they find barbiturates, morphine, a bunch of other assorted drugs, as well as insulin and needles. Not good. The problem with this, though, is there's no chain of evidence. There's no pictures. There's no recording of the data. There's nothing to validate how that evidence was collected and found. Sure, the defense would just say they planted this, like they they put all this stuff in this lockbox. Welcome to the appeal. It's going to fuck them later. Okay. They bring the bag back to the lawyer, and the lawyer goes to the family doctor and gets it tested, and insulin is found on the needle. And who the fuck has insulin on a needle if you're hypoglycemic? The doctor talks to the family lawyer and is like, hey, we need to call the authorities. If you don't, I will. This is, there's clearly, this is the cause of her coma. So they call the authorities, and the cop that's assigned is like, Yeah, fuck yeah, that sounds kind of weird. None of this is good. So he starts to do some research. He interviews Alex. He interviews Maria, the most loyal maid in the history of the world. Takes a look at the photos from the crime scene, as well as Sonny's medical records. And even goes as far with his wife taking her into the bathroom in the same kind of nightgown and trying to, like, did Sonny fall in this way? Right. Or was she drug in and placed in this way? Which, if you drag, he drug his wife in the bathroom, and because her gown hitched up on his hip, it lined up perfectly with how Sonny's body was found. And he's like, yeah, this guy's up to shady, shady deeds. So one day, outside of Sonny's New York apartment, he wants to catch Klaus off guard without any kind of time to prepare hey, man, can I just, you know, let me ask you a few questions. And he does the questioning shakedown. He's, you know, nice and gentle-like, but kind of leaves with the question just in that nonchalant way. Like, hey, you don't suppose your wife was using insulin for any reason? Klaus is horrified. God, no, that that would be the worst thing she could do. And the cop's like, fucking gotcha, motherfucker, gotcha. Because he does have them. So this is what happens. The cop's like, hey, I know about the bag. I know where it was found. Klaus is going to go back to Clarendon Court and get that fucking bag countdown on. So they have a tail on Klaus, 
And sure enough, within three days, guess who shows the fuck up at Clarendon Court? Klaus. Yeah, I, I figured. Yeah. I, Ta-da! Sorry. I, Big reveal. Klaus. Okay, Klaus shows up. But the cops are right behind him. They're on his heels with a search warrant. So the cops ring the bell for the second interview. And while Detective Reese is talking with Klaus, the police search the home. They find a few things. Klaus's closet was unlocked and open. There's a pad on Klaus's desk, which just says black box on it, which isn't suspicious at all. During the search, the police do find the black metal box in which the black bag is kept. But Klaus doesn't know the black bag isn't there yet because he's been circumvented by the cops right on his heels. Right. Okay. Klaus excuses himself from the interview. And when he returns back to the interview, the closet is locked again and the note is gone. Hmm. Hmm. In July of 1991, Klaus is indicted by a grand jury on two counts. I'm sorry. Yes. July 1981. (laughs) Klaus is indicted by a grand jury on two counts of attempted murder. He pleads not guilty. At the first trial, he is found not only guilty, but guilty as fuck. But hey, warrior for justice here. Money can do a lot of things in the criminal justice system. And don't forget, he's paying for this with Sonny's money and maybe a hefty, generous donation from J. Paul Getty as well. Cosima, the last child, is totally 100% for dad. Like, of course he didn't kill my mom. And the family lines have then been drawn in this saga. Yeah. He's convicted in 1982, I'd like to say by a jury of his peers, but in Newport, Rhode Island, you're, you don't have, like, those people are never going yeah. to go to a jury. So a working okay. class jury convicts him. And this is one of the first cases to really be in the television spotlight. Rhode Island has just allowed cameras in the courtroom. Gotcha. Okay. So, so this is part of why it was so notable. That's exactly it. He's found guilty, but decides certainly... Uh, Money can do some things, so he files an appeal and goes to that goddamn scumbag, Alan Dershowitz. Huh. Do you like to just riff on that goddamn scumbag for a second? I understand he's had a perfect, perfect sex life during the entire time he's known Jeffrey Epstein. He's been very clear about that. represent a lot of bad, bad, bad people. OJ? No, I get it. I mean, look, if you're a defense lawyer, especially if you're like an appellate defense lawyer, like you're going to represent bad people. Like that's the nature of the job. So like on that front, but gosh, if um, what uh, David Bowie's or whatever, if what his client is saying about Dershowitz is accurate, then um, bye-bye, Alan. (sighs) Bye-bye. Dershowitz, scumbag of the earth, uh, and his crack team of 19 really underpaid legal assistants, do you manage to get the verdict appealed by the Rhode Island Supreme Court? Overturns the conviction. There is a retrial in July of 1985, and in that retrial, he was acquitted. Because they couldn't use the black bag as evidence? That, there, <sighs> all just bad. I mean, it was a high school prosecution team playing with you know, NFL players over on the defense side. Yeah. 
So we've got some interesting stuff here that I'm going to skip through from the Dominic Dunn article. The problem with from the Dominic Dunn article, Fatal Charm, again, published in 85. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do think there are a few pieces here that stand out that are the trashier bits of this, which Dominic Dunn lived in, lived in the high society trash candy. So... The problem with Klaus, said one of Klaus von Bülow's closest friends at a Park Avenue dinner party, is that he does not dwell in the palace of truth. You see, he's a fake. He's always been a fake. His name is a fake. His life is a fake. He has created a character that he plays. So from the beginning, the von Bülow proceedings, legal and otherwise, had an air of unreality about them. His once beautiful wife was one of the country's richest heiresses. His stepchildren were a prince and princess. His daughter was a disinherited teenager. His former mistress was a socialite actress. His current lady friend was a thrice-married Hungarian adventuress who was not the countess she was often described as being. Maria, the maid, who testified against him, had once worked for the Krupps. According to the terms of Sonny's will, the apartment would go to Von Bülow when she dies, so will Clarendon Court. The fabulous mansion set on 10 acres overlooking the sea in Newport, Rhode Island, where her two comas took place during successive Christmas holidays. So will $14 million of her $75 million fortune. In the meantime, the maintenance on the apartment is paid for by Sonny's estate, So, in effect, Von Bülow and his self-proclaimed mistress, Andrea Reynolds, have been largely supported by his comatose wife since his conviction in 1982 for her attempted murder. Well, that's appalling. So, Dominic Dunn (laughs) ends up getting a fucking invite in between the, uh, in the second trial to the New York apartment where he meets Klaus and Andrea Reynolds, who are being photographed by Helmut Newton in just the trashiest photo shoot of all time. But rumor going around the Upper East Side is that Andrea wore Sonny's clothes and jewels. She had her clothes altered by a seamstress from the Yves St. Laurent Boutique on Madison Avenue. Not true, Mrs. Reynolds had exclaimed when I mentioned these allegations. I have far better jewels than Sonny Von Bülow ever had. I've had fantastic jewels all my life. I wasn't even 20 when I had one of the biggest diamonds around. Be careful what you say about my jewels. I don't want to be robbed again. These are really just horrible people. Horrible people. Okay. So she suffers, I love the word suffers here, a million-dollar jewel heist at her villa in Saint-Tropez in the late 60s. Oh, gosh. Uh, She had another robbery in New York in a hotel suite when she was seeing Deep Throat. Once a pair of $80,000 earrings disappeared from a dressing room at Dior in Paris after she removed them to try on fur turbans. Ah, She shows Dominic the several velvet boxes on the bed. These are all my jewels. So let me give you the scoop on Andrea Reynolds. Hmm. Her third husband is a TV producer named Sheldon Reynolds. He, at the end of his first trial, they write Klaus a letter. We believe you're innocent and lonely and isolated, Klaus responds. They meet in New York and a warm friendship quickly develops. Klaus begins spending weekends at the couple's country home in Livingston Manor, New York. They stay frequently at the Von Bulow apartment. 
making some plans which fall apart when Sheldon is on a business trip in London, reads in a gossip column that his wife and Klaus are having an affair. A divorce is now in progress. Really great people. Andrea claims, we were both unhappy when we met. Klaus and I, of course, it was inevitable. Okay. Now, one of Von Bulow's swellest friends, who doesn't see him anymore, says six years ago, before all this happened, Klaus wouldn't have had the time of day for Andrea Reynolds. Andrea says she claims to have known Von Bulow for years, but they did not travel in the same realm of society. They keep up, and now they're attached at the hip. And she's getting the ticket to center stage that she's always craved. And they keep up this frantic pace, uh, including an 18th birthday party before this is before the second trial included an 18th birthday party for Cosima at Mortimer's. Here's the thing, though. And this party is not attended by a single one of Cosima's friends. They're attended by New York socialites. But as long as they take Cosima with them when they go out, her trust fund pays the bill. Holy shit. Klaus continues to wear his wedding ring from his marriage to Sonny, although he has said a number of times they would have divorced if what happened had not happened. The ring, in fact, was returned to him before the first trial by Alexandra Isles. Mrs. Isles had the wedding ring in her possession because it embarrassed her to have him wear it during the course of their affair. It's all bad. He says he was very much in love with Sonny, but we were geographically apart for two years. Like, it, oh, God, he just sucks. Scumbag. Okay. So let me give you a little dirt on him. He was a page boy at Herman Goring's wedding. Wow. Good times. Wow. Uh, Some of the... So dad really was a Nazi. Dad really was a Nazi. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not not just... Not just... uh, No, dad really was was a Nazi. He was actually part of the Nazi party. Okay. Yep, yep. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, rumors that float around say that Klaus is a necrophile, that he killed his beautiful mother and kept her body on ice, that he was involved in international espionage. Klaus either has a logical explanation for each rumor or shrugs it off as ludicrous. He is born in 1926. His parents divorced when he's four. His father was a drama critic who greatly admired the Germans, even after they occupied Denmark. He gave a good name to a bad cause, says Klaus about his father. He dined with the wrong people. Apparently you do too. After the war, he was arrested as a Nazi collaborator and sentenced to four years in prison. His mother's residing in England at the time of the German invasion in Denmark. Klaus is spirited there. Through the early years of the war effort, when he's 16, he's accepted at Cambridge University. He graduates in 1946 with a law degree. He's too young to take the bar, so he spends a year in Paris auditing courses at L'École de Sciences Politiques and introducing himself to the world of high society. He works with a Hambrose Bank in London, joins the law offices of Quinton Hogg, later Lord Hailsham, An interesting fact that was not brought up in either trial is that during the 1950s, his law firm handled the first known case of murder by insulin injection. Well, that seems relevant. Okay. Von Bulow and his mother, with whom he lived until after her death, I think a great time after her death, Hmm. bought one of the grandest apartments in London in Belgrave Square. 
Klaus said it dined 200 with ease and slept three with difficulty. Before gambling became legal, he rented it out to his friend John Aspinall for private gambling parties. Aspinall we're going to talk about a little later. He also made friends with Lord Lucan, who later murdered his children's nanny in the mistaken belief that it was his wife. I've heard this story, yeah. We have got a awesome cast of characters here. In San Moritz, he had an affair with socialite Anne Woodward after she killed her husband, Billy Woodward. Yikes. This story is all up Dominic Dunn's alley. Yeah. Right? In the early 60s, when he was 33, Klaus is hired as an administrative assistant to legendary oil tycoon J. Paul Getty. There's been much speculation as to exactly what Von Bülow's importance was in the Getty empire, whether he was an errand boy or figure of consequence. Getty hated to fly, so Von Bülow frequently represented him at meetings and reported back. A woman friend of Getty's told Dominic that Klaus arranged parties in his apartment at which the old man could meet girls. What is certain is that his income from working for one of the richest men in the world was less than $20,000 a year. Yikes. Klaus speaks of Mr. Getty with enormous affection and says that one of the major mistakes in his life was leaving England for that job. So let's talk about Sonny. She marries Klaus 13 months after the divorce from her first husband. In the first divorce from Prince Auersberg, she settles a million dollars in two houses. Tired of living in Austria, tired of her husband's philandering and big game hunting in Africa, Sonny wants to bring up their two children, Annie Laurie, Alla, and Alex, age seven and six, in the U.S. So they head on back. They get an apartment, 965th Avenue. Like, this is... High, high brow society. Okay. How, I mean, what, how does it, like, are either one of these people still alive? Who? The Vambulos. No, Sunny passed away from her irreversible coma a few years ago, and Klaus, motherfucker, died earlier this year. May really? earlier this year. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So she was in a coma for like 20 or 30 years. 30 years. Shit. Maybe more. That is really, really heartbreaking. 30 plus years. 30 plus years. Yeah, really heartbreaking for the kids. Andrea Reynolds, let me give you a little bit of input about her. You know what? She's a scumbag. Her family is described as Hungarian who knew them as noble without a title. She's had a bunch of marriages. Apparently, uh, the rumor around her is she killed her second husband which may or may not be true. Getting back, I, I don't I didn't want to, I'm going to say one more thing about her. Dominic Dunn says, one night the, hel- the telephone rang in my hotel room in Providence. It was Mrs. Reynolds. She asked me not to mention something she had told me about one of her husbands, and I agreed not to. I talk too much when I'm with you, she said. I'm going to have to arrange for you to have a little accident. <clears throat> okay. Wow, not, uh, Okay. As we know, a rich person on trial is very different from an ordinary person on trial. Thomas Puccio, Alan Dershowitz win the appeal. There are four other lawyers. Von Bülow in the second trial even hires his own court stenographer because the court-appointed one couldn't turn out transcripts fast enough for his defense team. That cost alone, combined with printing, binding, messengers' fees, was probably close to $1,500 a day. 
Nobody knows where the money really came from because at this point, Klaus's personal income from trust is about $120,000 a year. Again, y'all, it's a fascinating uh, little expose. Please check out Fatal Charm. A few other things I found interesting. Sonny's bedroom, Dominic got a chance to tour Clarendon Court. The Alex and Alla took him there. And the mother's bedroom remains exactly the way it was on the night of her second coma. Her elegant canopied bed consists of two beds pushed together, made up separately with porthole sheets, monogram blanket covers. On Von Bulow's side of the bed is an old silver-framed photograph of him in a striking, almost noble pose. I opened the handsome box on his bed table. It was filled with cartridge shells. Underneath the shells was a used syringe. Yeah. In one of Sonny's closets next to her evening dresses are all of the unopened gifts from that last Christmas in 1980. One from her lifelong friend, Isabel Glover. Another from her now deceased mother. Their festive wrappings are faded and limp. That's the thing I always remember from this story. It's just terribly sad. When we talk about the estrangement of Allah and Alex from Cosima, Cosima was welcome to use the house, but Allah and Alex aren't leaving the place alone to her. Dominic Dunn tells Klaus that Allah and Alex still cared for Cosima, and Klaus replies, I think they just have to put their money where their mouth is. I'm not impressed with constant repetitions of love and holding on to her money. I'd much rather hear them say they hate the brat, and that's why they're holding on to her money. He's a one-track mind kind yeah, of Yeah, he's a dick. Okay. Okay. So both Klaus and Andrea Reynolds are obsessed with the fact that Cosima had been cut out of the will. She sided with her dad. So she's out of the $110 million estate of her grandmother, Annie Laurie, for siding with her father. So that's $25 million for her. I'm going to talk about the update of how that shook out in just a minute. Uh, Sonny Von Bulow, at the time of this writing uh, in 1985, lies in the fifth year of her coma on the 10th floor of Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. She is not, as many believe, on life support, nor is she in a total, nor is she the total vegetable she is often described as being. Dominic is told the yearly cost of maintaining her is considerably in excess of half a million dollars. Her $725 a day room is guarded around the clock by a special security force. She has private nurses and a maid. A maze of curtain screens further protects her from the remote possibility that an outsider should gain entry into her room. She's fed through a tube in her nose, receives physical therapy and dental care. Her hair is washed and set twice a week. Her own skin creams are used on her hands and face. She wears her own nightgowns and bed jackets and always sleeps on portal sheets. Music is always playing in the room. Highly scented flowers. Allah and Alex visit her regularly. Allah sometimes brings her two-year-old daughter, who she's also called Sunny. They love their mom. They're so... Where in high society, most kids call their mom mummy. They call her mom. Like they have such like, ah, Klaus is a dick. So in the bizarre twist of fate, uh, Prince Alfie von Auersberg, also in a reversible coma in Salzburg. It's a uh, story is just so full of tragedy. At the time of this writing, Cosima had not been to the hospital since December of 1981, nor had Klaus von Bülow. In the three years that preceded her coma, most of her friends say they did not see her or only saw her rarely. 
Some of them claim Klaus isolated her, answered the telephone for her, took messages that they felt she never received. Annie Laurie, her mother, did remarry an artist named Russell Aitken. And his dislike, this is from the September 1985 article, of his stepson-in-law is ferocious. Uh, it predates the two charges of attempted murder by insulin injection. Uh, Russell Aitken recalled for the first time he met Klaus. It was in 1966 in London in the lounge of Claridge's Hotel when Von Bulow, a suitor for Sonny, had just divorced Prince Auersberg. Klaus arrived for the meeting with Sonny's parents with his head covered in bandages, explaining he'd been in an automobile accident. Later, they find out the truth. His head was bandaged because he just had his first hair transplant operation. He apparently got along with the kids well in the beginning. They used to call him Ducky because during these hair plant operations, he couldn't get his hair wet. So in the pool, he swam with his neck up like a duck. Interesting. Back to Russell Aitken. I love this quote. He says, about Klaus, he's an extremely dangerous man because he's a Cambridge-educated con man with legal training. He is totally amoral, greedy as a wolverine, cold-blooded as a snake, and I apologize to the snake. That actually sounds accurate. Okay. So what happened with the the children? Like, I, I assume they're all still around. They are all still around. Okay. Have they ever been able to reconcile, or was that... Ish. We're getting to it. Okay, cool. I love it that you anticipate. It's awesome. So the burning question during this second trial is, would Klaus's acquittal give him automatic use of his comatose wife's $3.5 million annual income minus the half million dollars it takes to maintain her? If so, his access to the money was not immediate. Civil litigation could tie it up for years. In the meantime, unless Sonny dies and Von Bulow inherits the $14 million, he'll have to make do with that interest on the 120000 Okay, he does get acquitted. Von Bulow never visits his wife at Columbia Presbyterian. Two weeks after the acquittal in 1985, his passport is returned. The next day, he and Andrea Reynolds leave for New York. They do not fly first class. Okay, I don't think you ever see Sonny again. In 1985, 10 days after the not guilty verdict, Alla and Alex sue Klaus in civil court for $56 million. Good. Mm-hmm. Von Bulow in this trial gives up all claim to his wife's estate, agrees to divorce her, relinquishes all rights to write books or earn money by publicizing the case. This is like early OJ mm-hmm. repercussions. Okay. It, this was this is what happen, happens in the settlement at the end of 1987. So he gives up a shit ton. What happens in return? Cosima is restored to one-third share of her grandmother's estate, and the Auersbergs agree to drop their lawsuit. In the civil case, Klaus wants to avoid it at all costs because they say new evidence would have been introduced. This way, Cosima can be written back in the will. Alla and Alex say they filed the suit for two reasons. They wanted to prevent Klaus from profiting financially from what he did. Secondly, he had control over Sonny's medical treatment, and they wanted to get him out of their mother's mother's life and remove him from control over her treatment. The story is all shady, 
there's a lot of little bits and follow-ups. The story of Alexandra Isles is fascinating. Andrea Reynolds is fascinating. I'm, I'm really curious if there's any evidence that he was like personally injecting morphine and barbiturate with the other stuff that was found it's a lot of drugs to have if you're not using them yeah i agree god just don't keep morphine around the house for fun yeah and i mean when i was in the er they gave me morphine for my shoulder and the nurse mentioned that it gets metabolized pretty quickly so i wonder if uh that night that the son had to carry sunny up the stairs then he'd already started yeah well klaus starts the year before her coma saying Oh, Sonny's a drunk. He starts spreading all of these horrible, vicious rumors about her, which, you know, she definitely maybe had a problem. Definitely maybe. I don't know. Had a problem with pills and alcohol. But he's looking to find a way out. Would have been so rare in the 1970s. Right. Because he wants to be with Alexandria. Sure. Or or whatever. Or Or whatever he wants. Yeah, that week. Well, famously... Alexandra shows up at the first trial and the defense is grilling her and they ask like, what do you think about this? And, you know, do you still love him? And she's like, you know, I don't, have you ever been in like, why would you continue to defend him? Alexandra also says that Klaus told her after the first attempted murder that he sat and watched Sonny go down, 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 down for a number of hours and just couldn't go through with it. She's got testimony to add to this that she doesn't really talk about in the first trial. The kids plead with her to come back for the second trial. By this point, the love affair is over and she's sort of wisened up. She's doing amazing things now. She is a documentary filmmaker doing films about the Holocaust and all. She has moved beyond Klaus. Thank the Lord. We all need to move. Uh beyond Klaus because god that guy's a monster I have one more fun tidbit which I would be remiss if I did not mention Dominic Dunn and Klaus von Bülow are not friends I'm stunned to learn this so in another city not my own the book that Dominic wrote about the OJ trial he does mention that he's his agent Suzanne is trying to set up a meeting with Gil Garcetti from the DA's office and Dominic is like, Hey, it's cool. I've got this private gentleman's club. I think this is the union club in New York. I think I can verify that and not the Knickerbocker, even though I've been down that rabbit hole for a minute. Hey, come to my gentleman's club. We can meet there. Nobody's going to know who Gil Garcetti is. Like it's cool. It's safe. It's fine. So they come into the club and blah, blah, blah. And this is what Dominic Dunn as Gus Bailey writes when he talks about it. When I was asked to join, I was put up by the then ambassador to France and seconded by someone equally swell. And then I was blackballed. It only takes one member to blackball you and no explanations have to be given. They never tell you who blackballs you, but I'm not an investigative reporter for nothing. It didn't take me long to discover it was Klaus von Bülow about whom I had much to say at the time of his trial for the attempted murder of his wife. Fascinating, Gus, said Suzanne. What happened? I wrote a letter to the president of this club and said that if I had known Klaus von Bülow was a member, I would have never allowed my name to be put up for membership. Yep. 
I also said that I continued to believe he was guilty of the crime of which he'd been acquitted. What happened? For the first time in the history of the club, they overruled a blackball. <laughs> I was in, and a short time later, Klaus resigned. I saw him here once before he resigned. We passed on those marble stairs. I could literally feel his hatred as we passed. Ugh. Klaus von Bülow is a monster, and he killed Sonny, and I'm angry about it. So not a lot of fun with done this week. I do encourage you. I could read the rest of the 18,000 words, but go to Vanity Fair and pull up Fatal Charm and read the article if you're interested in the case. It will give you all the dishy dish behind the case that you may already know. And that, my dear, wraps up Fun With Done 109. It's a tragedy. Fune with Dune. Oh, it's, not, it's terrible. I mean, it's terrible. Both of their parents ended up mm-hmm. in irreversible comas yeah. for years. For years. I mean. Yeah, for years. And what they did do, let me go back to this little bit of research. They founded with their shit ton of money. Founded or contributed to an organization known as Justice for Surviving Victims. They remain remote figures throughout most of the second trial, but contribute number of dollar dollar bills to funding coma research, both for their mother and sadly their father. Well, and the world in general. Yeah. Well, uplifting. No, it's not uplifting at all, but there's your Dominic Dunn connection with I mean it's Cosmobulo. It's no marrying a chandelier, but uh let's blackball Klaus von Bülow. He is black he's blackballed in hell. Not, yeah. I don't even yeah. think hell will let him in. Yeah, man. All right, well. Y'all, keep it trashy. Fune with Dune. Some handy tips to remember. Insulin should never be given to a hypoglycemic. Handy rule number one. If you are investigating evidence all on your own, document. Bring a video camera. Take pictures. Or, better yet, don't be so swayed by your privilege and money that you don't call in the fucking authorities so you can have a goddamn chain of evidence. Bless everybody in this story, except for Klaus and Andrea Reynolds. Yeah, they it doesn't, can go to hell. doesn't sound like they get any blessings at all. There you go. Okay. We're going to be back next week with a follow-up on Sunday's story with the even trashier divorce that hit West Palm. And I'm excited to talk to y'all about that one. Until then, keep it trash, candy, gossipy, and keep Dominic Dunn and his little wonderful investigative heart in yours. Cheers, y'all. Bye. Bye. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, 
an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Welcome to another episode of Side Piece. And Stacy, I can't say no to this. <laughs> How does a bastard... No. How does a bastard orphan... I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you telling me that Alexander Hamilton had a torrid affair <laughs> and he wrote it down right there? He did. Highlights! Oh, tell your story, tell your story. I love this. All right. This is the, kind of a good one for me because it ties into politics as well. And... History and go. Ah, the sex scandal. It's hard to imagine politics without them. And indeed, America's love affair with trash candy goes back to the very start of the nation. George Washington was president from 1789 to 1797. And among a great many other things to come out of his administration was our first sex scandal. And the crowd cheered. It involved Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. That bastard. Orphan, son of a whore. You've been living under a rock since 2015. You should know that there is a musical (laughs) that Alicia knows all of the words to, and she will be reciting many of them. May I? May I take a point of privilege? Indeed. Hey, y'all! For everybody out there who hasn't listened to Hamilton, who are like, "Hey, yeah, I can't wait to see it when it comes to my town, wherever your town is. Don't wait for it to come to your town. Just go ahead and listen to the soundtrack. Yeah, because you're gonna miss the show if you wait for it to come to your town." It's at three times the pace of any show you've ever seen, and you'll miss all the beauty and all the layers and the connection. If you've been under a rock, go listen to the soundtrack of Hamilton now, and I'll be there for you in Act Two. It's okay. If you have little children or little grandchildren, just go on the internet and look at all of the little videos of little children dressed up as Aham or whoever rapping. Aham. Uh Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's really, I mean... If we could get Hercules our Mulligan. if we could get our cats to wear clothes, we would we'd fake the duel scene and film it every day, okay. every day. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Sex scandal, go. Sex scandal. It involved Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton, a towering figure in the early years of the country, and a longtime confidant of George Washington himself. Hamilton was. Would you say he was his right hand man? I would. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm done. I would. Hamilton is credited with establishing the American financial system, structuring our trade relations, especially having good trade relations with Britain, which I guess was not a given after we beat them in a war. Well, not uh, after we used their greatest enemy of all time, France, to beat them in the war. Oops. (laughs) If they could just settle on a final status for Calais. Turns out we have a secret weapon. An immigrant you know and love. Oh. He's unafraid to step in. Yeah. Love I Okay. Alexander Hamilton, I think most notably for us, also founded the New York Post. He, that he did. Which has sadly fallen victim to Rupert Murdoch's scheme to inject brain worms into older white people. Hashtag brain worms. True that. Also use, founded Wall Street. Use it on Twitter. Yeah. He, he, yeah. I mean, it would be difficult to overstate his contributions to brain to worms creating America. Uh, no, Alexander Hamilton, not not a brainworm guy. Uh, okay, I mean I lost con- the thread. I mean, you lost the thread. Okay. <laughs> okay, so again, if you've been under a rock for the last few years, a little background on old Ham. 
He was born on the island of Nevis in the Caribbean in either 1755 or 1757. And I in think, the eye of a hurricane. Yeah. I think most historians think 1757 is correct. That is what he seemed to believe. Apparently there is a document in Nevis that whatever. Okay. There's some shabby record keeping. Sure. sure. In pre-revolutionary Old times. Old timey record keeping. He was orphaned at an early age. As a teenager, his community in the town of Charlestown raised funds to send this talented and brash young man to the colonies for his education. And I imagine there was a little bit of like waving him off and then like a deep sigh of relief because I think this guy was just irrepressible from go and probably exhausted everyone in his hometown. Well, he, he wrote his way out. He The article that he wrote in a yeah. paper was about the hurricane that came and wiped it out. And right. it was such... It was a letter ex- to his father, actually. Yeah. Wrote, mm-hmm. Extraordinary prose. The town probably was like, God, it's Here's our pain chance. in the ass. Here's our but chance to get rid of that Yeah. Guy. I mean, that's why Hamilton always goes to pen and paper. He's written his way out of everything. Yeah. Which I think will be prophetic for your story momentarily. A bit. He arrived in Boston in 1772 headed to New York, and he began studying at King's College, which is now Columbia, in 1773, which is where he fell in with a bunch of patriots who were then urging a war of independence from England. Huzzah! Had they lost, Alexander Hamilton would be one of history's most infamous terrorists. Hamilton served in the Revolution. He was a key aide to General George Washington. And then he held a seat in, like, the Continental Congress, whatever, uh, under the Articles of Confederation, which, of course, were entirely unworkable. So in 1782, he resigned from that seat in Congress, headed to Albany. He had married, uh, so headed to Albany with his family. His beautiful wife, Eliza Schuyler. Mm-hmm. All right. So in 1782, he resigned that seat from Congress, headed to Albany, New York. Yep. That's how that's pronounced, right? Albany, of Albany. course. Albany. And opened a law practice. Interestingly, I didn't know this, he specializes, like in, in, in his private practice, he specializes in representing British subjects who were had claims against them because of like stuff they got damaged in the war. Really? Yeah. Huh. And I guess in the Treaty of, is it Paris? It was the Treaty of Paris that resolved the American Revolution? 1780. Yeah, I think so. 83. I guess that treaty prohibited, the, or it just nullified. It seems pretty normal that you would like indemnify all of the combatants after a war ends. Anyway, he also represented the first person on trial for murder in our country. I, I'm gonna guess that's true. Um, that was not in the Wikipedia pages that I looked at. <laughs> but I'm gonna guess that's true. You should have referred to the Hamilton documentary, right? No, the by Lin Manuel Miranda. It's a good Correct. documentary. So good. Anyway, so he, yeah, he basically pushed the state of New York to conform its laws to the terms of the treaty, is sort of was the point of all of that. Anyway, I thought that was interesting, because he was a passionate patriot, and he... Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Okay, so he was instrumental in getting a constitutional convention called, because Mm -hmm. again, Articles of Confederation is not a way to run a country. And when he was appointed as one of three delegates to the Constitutional Convention from New York, he managed to profoundly show his ass. Who the F is this? Well, so Hamilton is not a big egalitarian at this point in his life. And so he's got this whole notion that power should fall 
on the rich and well-born. So he's got this thing like the president should have a lifetime term and senators should serve lifetime terms on good behavior. You know, like everybody could be impeached for corruption. But other than that, like they wanted a good behavior thing working out. Right. He wanted to enshrine like his idea was that the British monarch was so rich that outside influence, like you can't buy the British monarch, like France can't buy the British monarch. He's too rich. So if they just pick the richest guy and put him in power for life, then they can't be corrupted. (laughs) 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 The jokes just write themselves. (laughs) Okay. So that happened. Um, Apparently there were three delegates from New York and the other two would not let Alexander Hamilton propose this batshit idea. Well, they wouldn't let him like be alone. (gasps) And so because they like New York never voted the way Hamilton wanted New York to vote in the convention. They would not allow it anyway. And it was his uh, father-in-law, Philip Schuyler, who got him. That sweet gig at the Constitutional Convention. Oh, that was nice. Thanks, Daddy-in-law. <laughs> Where, like, he had no, he had no influence whatsoever. It was interesting. Okay, but George Washington still good friend. I can't wait to see the duel between you and Lin Manuel Miranda. That's going to be amazeballs. <laughs> um, no, but like, you know, Washington trusts him implicitly, knows For him sure. to be exceptional. So when you know when this Constitution thing happens, and then they hold an election. You know, George Washington is elected president, 1789. And Treasury he, or state. Yep, yep. He taps Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of Treasury. He serves in this role until 1795. These are important years for this story. And also worth noting that Ham married Elizabeth Schuyler in 1780. So at this point, he's been married for a good decade or decade so. Decade plus. All right, stage is set. So it is that in the year of our Lord, 1791, 34-year-old Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton is residing in the temporary capital of the nation, Philadelphia, when a 23-year-old named Mariah Reynolds approaches him out of the blue. She has a story. Her husband, James Reynolds, has abused and abandoned her and their daughter after moving the family from New York City to Philadelphia. What she wants most in the world is to be able to move back to her family in New York. But alas, she has no funds. Are you telling me that she said to him, my husband's doing me wrong, (laughs) beating me, cheating me, mistreating me. Suddenly he's up and gone and I don't have the means to go on. Yeah, that sounds about right. Sounds about right. Nailed it. Yeah. So in theory, she's wanting to move back to New York. He's like, checks his pockets like, oh, I have no money on me. He's like, hey, I am in fact a rich guy. Thanks for thinking of me. Give me your address, and I can come by later with funds to get you to New York City. Get you and your daughter out of here and away from this very bad man. So it's all very innocent. She's soliciting a favor. Seems to be, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not sure why. Like, he also is from New York City and moved to Philadelphia. Like, I'm not totally sure why they picked him, but... Pretty young girl. Mm. Needs a favor. Mm. I'm an elder statesman. At the age of 34. I'll come by and help you out later. Right. Which he does. So, you know, grabs the address, 
I don't know, runs by the bank. I don't what I don't know what you do in 1791. Go to your desk. I whatever. Well, it turns out that money wasn't all she wanted, and so it is that an approximately year-long affair begins between married Ham and married Mariah. Okay, I have a question. Okay. Why target him? Of all the elder statesmen, like, do you just hear he's hung and you kind of want to roll in the hay with him? Are you planning blackmail with your husband for a future date? See, I think it was a setup. Like, this, I, I think... treasury this... secretary, so he's going to well, have plenty of cash? There's also an alternate theory. Tell me. Which I get into kind of at the end, but... Oh, well, don't. Keep going, then. Okay. But, yeah, put a pin in that. There's... There, there's an alternate view of this. Okay, talk to me. Mm, okay. So this, the, the affair, I think, pretty quickly takes on the feel of having been a total setup. Soon into it, Maria tells Ham that James, her husband, wants to reconcile and that she's agreed to it, but she does not end the affair. Oh. Uh, well, that's she, a sure start of a healthy reconciliation. She arranges for James to interview with Ham for a job at Treasury, oh. but apparently Ham could grift a, could sense a little griftiness about him and declined to hire him. James had also written to George Washington in at the start of his administration to ask for a job. Really? Yeah. Players, no players, man. Yeah, he was a Revolutionary War veteran. He also had multiple ongoing claims for back pay and damages stemming from like per, like loss of personal property in the war like he he's kind of, he seems like he was a pretty solid con artist grifter's and, gonna grift mm-hmm, yeah even in 1790 1790 all right so no job for him so around 17 sorry around december of 1791 ham had kind of sort of broken things off with mariah when suddenly she writes him very animated because James had discovered, air quotes, discovered this affair and he was furious. James sent several threatening letters to Ham and Ham agreed to meet with him and try to smooth things out. This carried more than a few risks because at the time, the custom was that if you cheated, you know, with a man's wife, then a duel was the correct remedy. Just call it, say murder. You may be surprised, though, to learn that James decided a duel was just not necessary with old Ham, and instead for the... Hamilton was an amazing shot. Hamilton didn't miss. For the low, low price of $1,000, James could just let the whole thing slide. Oh, well, that's nice. So, there you go. That's the end of that. It's time to pay the piper for the pants you unbuckled. Yeah, yeah. Pays the money. Clearly, affair over. Everybody's silent. Oh, no, but then he oh, says, no. you can keep seeing my whore wife if the price is right. Yeah, because gravy trains are important. James Reynolds writes to Ham in January 1792, mm-hmm. and he encourages mm. him to continue visiting Maria, which Ham apparently does. No. So when Ham makes these visits, he will soon after receive a letter from Mariah requesting money, and he will send along 30 or 40 bucks, described as loans. Sure. The final loan to uh, James and Mariah was for $50, and it was paid in June of 1792, and that is when historians believe the affair ended. Wow. In total. It's like a hot and heavy year-long affair. Yes. In, yeah. In total, and blackmail scheme. And Eliza has no idea. We think. At the time. Yeah. Okay. Um. All right. In total, 
Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton paid out about $1,300 Holy to the Reynoldses. And he may have believed that was enough to keep their silence. That is a fortune. But. Nope. But it turns out that James's grifting went way beyond blackmailing his wife's boyfriend. So you remember that time period back when Ham was in the pre-Constitution Congress and the Articles of Confederation were a shambles? Yeah. Okay, one way they were a shambles was that under them, the federal government did not have the power to tax. Okay, I'm just letting that house of cards fall in my brain. Okay. Okay, so think about that. They had just massed this huge army for sure to fight this big war against the most powerful military on earth. With which, no idea how to pay for it because the they way, weren't going to overtax people like the Brits did yeah. to them. Okay. Yeah. So the Americans win the war, but now you've got a huge war debt. You've got a huge war debt. You've got like American soldiers who got injured and can't work who need their pensions. You've got back pay claims from. Tons of soldiers who didn't get paid on time. It's just a fucking nightmare. And this, like, this country, like, thanks for your service. Good luck. Hope you like being hungry. I mean, we're... (laughs) Yeah, so I guess all of the states had to approve anything, which is why the articles didn't work. Yeah. Um, Because Virginia would just prevent taxation. James Reynolds, who, like Ham, was a veteran of the Revolution had gotten into an illegal financial scheme whereby he and some co-conspirators would illegally purchase veterans' pensions or their back pay claims. What? Yeah, so I'm thinking that these transactions kind of looked like, hey, fellow veteran, I see that you are down on your luck and cannot eat because you have no money For the low, low price of $50 in your pocket cash right now, we will purchase your pension claim from you. That's worth 200 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Robin Peter to pay Paul. Right. Okay. Right. It's, and and speculation is the term. It's for, I guess their bet was that once there was a real government in place, that real government would actually fund the pensions. Sure. So this is speculation when you purchase an asset expecting that it will appreciate in value. And there's that's in that's in your song, right? Oh, yeah. The charge against me is that a connection with one James Reynolds for the purposes of improper speculation. Improper speculation. My real crime is an amorous connection with his wife for a considerable time with his knowing consent. Right. So one part of this speculation thing is that it required that James Reynolds and his co-conspirators forge Signatures on documents. Oh, God. So in November of 17... Uh, yeah, 1792. I wrote 1972, but no. So close. November of 1792, so months after the affair ended. Okay. James and his co-conspirator, Jacob Klingman, were arrested for forgery. Huh. And James and Mariah both write to Ham like, hey, buddy. Can you help us? Hook a brother up, right? right? And Ham is like, you guys go fuck yourselves. I'm done. I've I paid you, you 1300 Yeah, we're done. So Klingman makes bail, his co-conspirator, and he goes to visit with some politicians from the opposite party. Hamilton's a federalist. He goes to sit with the, the Dem reps, the Democratic Republicans, and tell them that he's got a friend who's got a story. Oh, no. Yeah. So, enter founding father James Monroe. 
also a member of Congress. So he leads a delegation <sighs> of very important men, I guess, to like the Philadelphia city jail where they sit down with James. And like, James doesn't say, Ham had an affair with my wife and I blackmailed him. James, no, he wouldn't say that. James says Ham was involved in my financial fraud scheme. Or, like, hints at it. And they're like, well, that certainly is troubling that the Secretary of the Treasury might be involved in a financial fraud scheme and the illegal purchase of of veteran pensions and just all of it. I mean, it was really, really gross. So they go to talk. It's never going to be president now. They go to talk to Mariah, and she's like, yeah. And also, here are all the notes that... He sent when she he was, says, "Yeah, fraud scream," mm-hmm. or "Yeah, we yeah. had a fraud heavy affair." Yeah, fraud. Oh. And here are all the letters that he sent when he sent money for this. Oh no! So James Monroe is not a ham fan as it goes. No, but you know they his group heads over and sits down with Ham to to check in about this corruption they're hearing stories about, and. You know, I'm. I think the the idea was that James Reynolds was trying to make the case that Ham was like the ringleader and funder of this program, and as Treasury Secretary, there was also the risk that he had access to taxpayer dollars to fund this illegal enterprise that would deprive veterans of lawful benefits. Anyway, what happens? Ham is like, nah, dog. I didn't do any of that. I was just sleeping with the guy's wife, and then they blackmailed me. <laughs> that's that's what happened. Here, I have a bunch of letters. Here are my letters. Take a look. Take a look at these letters. Oh, I'm guilty. I'm super guilty, but I'm not guilty of what you think I'm guilty of. I did a bad, bad thing, just not the thing you're accusing me of. Uh... So Monroe and, and his team are like... Okay, actually, we find your story compelling, and there's less so. But you know what? We're going to copy down... We still know your story. We're going to copy down a few of these letters. Monroe is close political allies with Thomas Jefferson. And so he sends this material on to Jefferson for safekeeping. Fuck, that is not safekeeping. (laughs) Well... That is time bomb ticking. It is not safekeeping for Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) No, it's time bomb ticking. So, you know, Hamilton's cleared. Life goes on. He stays Treasury Secretary for a few more years. With some blackmail material burning a hole in Jefferson's fucking ass. (laughs) Oh, my God. One way to put it. Yeah, Jefferson, who, of course, is above reproach in his own life. Jesus Christ. No, Jefferson's a dickbag. All of these people are very. He's plotting. He is not an irrational dickbag. There's nothing irrational about Jefferson. All right. So the next year, (laughs) this is so amazing. Mariah Reynolds hires Aaron Burr to handle her divorce from (laughs) James Reynolds. Yes. And later, Aaron Burr petitions, oh, someone in Congress or a governor or something to basically to fund her daughter's private boarding school. No. Yeah. Like, and it happens. Like, Aaron Burr is... So not only have I thrown you under the bus in a scheme that is totally illegal that you didn't participate in, I'm going to your arch enemy to get help from a divorce from my... Yeah. Oh, 
Mariah. Yeah. So anyway, Mariah they, Pariah. So she and James divorce, and as far as I know, James disappears from history at this point. I don't. I don't know where. I don't know what happened. The further adventures of James Reynolds. I don't know. She marries the co-conspirator Klingman. No way. And they move to Alexandria. That is no. Yeah. <gasps> yeah, and they move to Alexandria, Virginia. Oh, I didn't see that twist coming. 1797. George Washington's universally respected presidency comes to an end, naturally. You know, it's he'd, he'd served two terms, decided that he needed to sit under his fig tree or whatever. Okay. Alicia's famous misheard Hamilton lyrics. Victory. I want to sit under my own vine in victory. Right. It totally, mm-hmm. it, it's fig tree. It is fig tree. And we hawk at dawn. We hawk at dawn. Go ahead. We'll get to the hawking. <laughs> I love the hawking. <laughs> Only at dawn, though. All right. So John Adams is elected president to succeed George Washington. Yep. And Thomas Jefferson is his vice president. Correct. They, again, are from opposite parties. Mm-hmm. This, as you were saying in your Aaron Burr piece, is Totally a great opportunity to kill your political the, rival. Sure. The Constitution, as written... Just had, like, the in the Electoral College, the first place finisher is president, the second place finisher is vice. Everybody else, go back home or whatever. All those poor food testers. <laughs> so, you know, I think if you're TJ, Thomas Jefferson, because, again, he's a very cunning... Very, oh, yeah. yeah oh, he's, yeah. Oh, yeah. So if you're Thomas Jefferson, you're probably looking around at the political landscape and you're wondering who... What did I miss? ...in the 1800 election would be strong enough to best you in the Electoral College. hmm And that Ham sure has the great love of George Washington, and he sure did accomplish a hell of a lot as a founder. How do I get him out of the way? So in the summer of 1797, a journalist gets his hands on these letters... That Monroe copied out. Rita Skeeter. (laughs) Rita Skeeter. And so this journalist announces that he is going to get to the bottom of Alexander Hamilton's public corruption. Uh. And Ham's like, hey, fuck you. And instead of letting these allegations just linger out there. He writes his way out. He, well, he he wrote his way out of politics. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Never going to be president now. Yeah. So, yeah, he sits down and writes the Reynolds pamphlet. Um, Have you and ever seen somebody ruin their own life? Yeah. Mm. It's a 95-page document that outlines the affair and the blackmail scheme, and it includes letters from various parties, including Maria, uh, Mariah. Sorry, I, I spelled it wrong throughout. It's right in the title. Anyway, including Mariah. There are affidavits from others who had knowledge. Well, let's let's be clear. Mm-hmm. Thirty-five pages of "I'm going to write my way out" is him, right? Then there's whatever sixty, 60 pages plus of supporting pages of affidavits, mm-hmm. documents to right. support him yeah. writing his way out of no chance of being president. Yeah, it was a bombshell, and it <laughs> <laughs> it ended. Highlight. Any aspirations Ham might have had for holding elective office, especially the presidency. And Thomas Jefferson was elected to the White House in the 1800 election. Well, no, he ran against Aaron Burr. Right. Sir. Sir. So the Mm tie-in with the bonus divorce from yesterday, like this all kind of goes hand in hand. Right. He didn't straight up win 
36 votes in a bribery contention. Well, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, um, no, but what a different race it would have had, had there not been this scandal. Oh, for sure. Um, Ham may very well have been because Washington died in 1799. Mm -hmm. So there probably would have been some jockeying over who would carry his legacy. For sure. No, that was Hamilton. Hamilton would be, yeah, Yeah. the natural choice. Until he went and fucked it all up. Yeah. So this also, of course, ruptured his marriage and Uh. ultimately led to his son Philip being killed in a duel when he tried to defend Uh. his father's honor. And three years after Philip's death, Hamilton himself was killed in a duel with longtime frenemy or nemesis Aaron Burr in 1804. (sighs) Ah. In Weehawken, New Jersey, very close to the spot where Philip himself was killed. What's that? All right. For Mariah's part, the publication of the Reynolds pamphlet caused huge problems. So she and Klingman moved to England. Go live there for a while. When she returned to the U.S., which was sometime before 1806, she was still named Klingman, but she was alone. What happened? Uh, No record of a divorce. Maybe he died. Maybe he just stayed. I don't know. Maybe she killed him in her further life of crime. Maybe. Probably not, though. She married a Dr. Matthew of Philadelphia in 1806. She put her past behind her, and she became a happy and well-respected member of the community. Doctor's wife? Huh. So it is worth noting that there is an alternative view among some historians who believe that Ham fabricated the affair to cover up the illegal pension-buying scheme. So Mariah herself said this was true though there is at least one contemporaneous account of her confessing the affair to an official while she was trying to get James out of the pokey. Oh. And I wouldn't talk to her. And they used kind of the same language. But again, that was like in an affidavit from 1797, not actually contemporaneous to the 1792 okay. events. So there's this argument that Ham's account is kind of flimsy and that key evidence that he said that he would, you know, present kind of never surfaced or it magically disappeared or the person he said had those documents didn't know what he was talking about when they went to ask like ah so and here's here's the kicker if you're a ham fan like the Broadway musical tell me the kicker it has been alleged that he forged Mariah's letters to him by patterning them on the letters that Eliza his <sighs> wife had sent to him and so the story goes that when Eliza recognized this in his evidence in the Reynolds pamphlet, she burned all her letters, which is one of the critical. Oh, I'm burning the letters that might have redeemed you. Emotional. Well, it wouldn't have redeemed him. It would have proved him guilty. Right? Like, if it was an act of fury, <laughs> that. Ugh. Okay. But also, it could also have been an act of. It could have been part of a cover up. Because if those letters came out after her death and they looked exactly the same as the Mariah Reynolds letters, then history would record that Alexander Hamilton had fabricated the affair to cover up a financial fraud. Okay. I don't have on my tinfoil hat. I think the much more I think it's likely much... scheme is he couldn't keep his dick in his pants. I agree. I think it's much more likely that he actually had an affair. And But I guess on the one hand, your options are... You get kicked out of public life, kind of. I mean, he was still really active in politics. Burr shot him because he was he 
he kept Burr from getting elected governor Pretty of much. New York or something. Well, once he was out of politics, he just was a pain in everybody's <laughs> fucking side. Yeah, yeah talk, 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 talk. So, you know, like either way, you're out of public Ugh. life, but one way you probably also go to jail. This way. So I don't know. I mean, it's a really interesting theory. But if you are just now sitting down to listen to Hamilton for the first time, the song Burn. Spoilers. Burn in Act Two is woof. (laughs) Wow. So that is America's first sex scandal, which potentially never was. It was a much more devious plan to steal pensions from veterans. I had no idea. Like (laughs) once Mariah's out and Mm -hmm. Act Two, Song Four, like I'm done. Mm-hmm. Pretty much with her. I didn't know she had that nefarious of a, and the grifter husband and the Aaron yeah. Burr handles her fuck. Dude, this week is divorce American revol trashy divorce American revolution style. Yeah, fucking love this week on Patreon. No, this is really really fun. Um, Thank and you again. I mean, because obviously we both love the musical Hamilton. It was kind of fun to learn some of the other stuff about Hamilton's life. In researching this, because... Yeah, uh, he's a pain in the ass. Yeah. Good musical. Yeah. Pain in the ass. Yeah. Wow. Yep. But, I mean, every founding father fucked around. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Aaron Burr oh, yeah. has a... Oh, yeah. ...secret illegitimate family. Thomas Jefferson has mm-hmm. a secret illegitimate family. Like, everyone fucked yeah. around. Yeah. You normally just fucked around with your servants, because you didn't have far to go. Yeah. American is no apple No D.D. horse carriage falls. Yeah. Wow. That was amazing. A dot ham. A dot burr. Yeah. God. I gotta go listen to Hamilton again. Yeah, probably so. God, I love it. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. That was awesome. Side piece Mariah Reynolds. All up here history style. One of America's first side pieces. I love it. That was amazing. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We hope you're going to listen to Hamilton, too. Yeah, definitely go listen to Hamilton. Keep it trashy. But not as trashy as fucking Thomas Jefferson, because that guy, ooh, James Monroe is probably trashier. Is that stuff on Spotify? Like, could we make a Spotify playlist that includes songs from Hamilton, or is that not on Spotify? Sure, it's on Spotify. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we should do that. Maybe. For the peoples. Y'all. <laughs> All right. so good. I hope Thanks, you enjoyed. Stacey. It was, was very amazing. fun to write. Thanks, y'all. Thanks. Bye. Keep it trashy. Always. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's sydneyvsmith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. 
Come join us over there. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.